James Fallon is a neuroscientist and professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the UC Irvine School of Medicine. This is James Fallon. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. Uh, I am here with James Fallon. Uh, thank you for joining me once again. Duncan, anytime. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. We're going to pretend like we weren't just talking. Um, basically, I, among you know many things that you have done in your career, one of the things that uh, is particularly interesting at this time is you did um, a study of Putin, uh, given your background as a neuroscientist. Um, can you tell us first off a little bit what that was? What, what was the scope of that project? Yes, I was uh, asked as part of my work on killers and psychopaths and everything, I was asked to give a talk back in 2011 at the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is the, uh, you know, we work with people trying to overthrow the dictatorial governments. And I was asked by the head of that to give a talk about dictators, what their minds are like, what their brains might be about. And so I spent some, about four months and about half those books behind me over my right shoulder uh, are have to do with different secondary sources on dictators. That is, I don't have primary sources. I don't have letters from dictators from 2000 years ago. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but people who have compiled works on, you know, the taste of art uh, of dictators, of the you know, brutality of dictators, the who do they marry? Or what it, or, yeah. and but well, you know individual dictators and what their behavioral traits were. So I went through kind of agnostically and and listed them. I spent months, uh, many months, listing all the traits that were very common to to dictators. Uh, you know, brutal dictators, really, the ones that were worth writing about because you know it's, it's not too many times you have a lot of said about people who don't do something that's brutal. Uh, and so going back about 3,000 years. And so I just compiled those and, and, and looked at them and I came up with this list that almost all the dictators had, that is so the traits that they had, and then ones that most of them had, that is they had most of these traits. So there was this, the, the list of, you know, glib and cunning and pathological lying and, and uh, you know, high violence, uh, and but and it turned out a lot of these were the traits of psychopaths and sociopaths. I, I guess that's not surprising. The um, you know I started out by looking at it. Almost all of them were very smart and they had great memories, except for Idi Amin. He was the one that didn't. And they all had very traumatic early child childhoods from birth to about three years old. They were given up for adoption, they were beaten, abused, et cetera, all of them, just like you'd find in psychopaths. And, and, and that's all of them, except Pol Pot was the one, he said he had a normal upbringing, but nobody can verify that. It's, you know, like most people, you know, he protects, his, he may have protected his tormentors. But at any rate, this, you know, hundreds of them uh, have this very common pattern. So uh, listing the traits, many of them have the psychopathic patterns, but also on top of it, they had high ratings for narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. I guess you would expect that also. And, and they, but they also had 
some other common traits that you wouldn't find in those say psychopaths or something like that. But quirky things, like a lot of them had like a bad arm, like the short arm, like, uh, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm yeah. and, and various ones, but also Putin has got that funky arm uh, that uh, he's, he's had for years. And they also have very curious sexual habits. They, they can be completely non-sexual, but mostly a very kinky and, and what we consider kinky uh, to the max. And, uh, and so that was the common feature was their, their sexuality was sort of extreme, hmm. too much or not enough. They almost all married very poorly if they did marry. And, uh, but, and so I, I put these together and I gave a talk in 2011. And at that time, Putin did not come up on the list, but at the meeting I was at in Oslo, after giving the talk, I, I was meeting with the former heads of various European uh, countries. For example, the head of Belarus, uh, I, I, I met with the people who adjudicated the breakup of the Soviet Union, those four guys spent time with them, several meetings over the years, but starting back then. And, uh, but also uh, at that time, he, he really didn't show up. It's like, why, why didn't Putin show up until 2011? It's a curious thing because it's not like he was hidden, but he, he, was, he didn't make the list as a dictator yet, certainly. And he didn't make the list as particularly psychopathic from what I know. Now, since that time, uh, I met more and more with people from like the former president of Ukraine, I met with numerous times and been in contact over the years, Yushchenko. He's the guy that Putin poisoned, uh, you know, with the, the skin that Viktor Yushchenko, I know. Oh, him. in the airport? Yeah, I know him and his wife, and I know, uh, and also uh, Berbalis. I also know the former prime minister of Chechnya and spent a fair amount of time with these guys over the years. And starting at about 2014, uh, and onward, I, you know, I met people who knew a fair amount about Putin. So that's the next talk I gave and like on him, the next talk I gave on dictators generally was about him in 2013 and 14. And then since then, as it's, as things have gotten um, worse as it were. And so I hear Tinkerbell behind yeah. me. So anyway, that's a, uh, and, and so and in, in, in so this got worse and worse. So I met one of the main biographers, Masha Gessen. She came to my house. I met her at a Google uh, conference. And I, I gave her the uh, different sorts of angles on epigenetic sorts of priming for psychopathy and whether he had that. So she's one of the main biographers and, and really cataloged a lot of it. I've been working with with, uh, with John Sweeney, who was with the BBC for many years. He's been in about 60 different wars and he's, and he's been in Ukraine since the start. So I've been in contact with him uh, every week, sometimes every day. Uh, and now we're coming up into more modern history like the past uh, three months. And I've been working with um, the people in USAID over there, uh, which basically the CIA and but also is it USAID well, people yeah because I'm you know it's interesting because I'm mean, the last the last 
podcast I did, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking to the guy and he is a journalist who has now been conscripted. So he went from talking like, uh, like, like, like you are right now sure. right, as a journalist. And then the next time he had fatigues on and this the one a few days ago in talking to him, because we just finished a series of interviews about, about Putin. I said, man, I said, what do you got on? He's, he's had, cam you know, he had camouflage outfits. He says, I'm now, he says, I'm now in the infantry. So he was taken wow. out, really not him, he's, but you know, that's what they're doing. And he keeps losing the, the feed, right? The internet, the, the internet connections. I said, what is going on? He says, well, they're, they're, they're bombing us. They're bombing us right now. How's this for a Zoom interview, right? Yeah. So he's getting, you know, and it, it ain't funny. I mean, I'm making it sound like it's cute, but it, you know, it ain't cute. And and he was at, uh, uh, they had moved him east of uh, Kharkiv. And I've been in, I spent eight days in Kharkiv Car Car and also in, in Kiev. And uh, so I know the area and spent, and spent time there. So, but he, we were going through that. And also, and I worked with his connections at Strategic Communications there, which handles the news outlets for Ukraine. Uh, but I was also working with several Russians uh, who are horrified by what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I work with some academics and some um, uh, filmmakers and also some politicos from Russia. And as part of that, over the past two months, as part of the, my work with the Human Rights Foundation, uh, four of us uh, put together a letter. We have we have a contact with with Xi, you know, in China, with with uh, Premier Xi, and and basically it was like you have a contact with with, with yeah. So, we, so we crafted a letter for Putin to read to his you know to Russian citizens, feeding into his psychopathy. So I was brought in to feed into how he, how he could say this. And still save face, saying, "Well, look, we've taken care of the, these, 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 these Jewish Nazis. I don't know how the hell they come up with this Jewish Nazi thing. Some of it's quite bizarre." But what is that? Is this is this that uh, Azov or something battalion? Yeah, yeah, well, that's some. It's the old battalion, and they had like they they you know were fascists, right? But uh, and they still had they had a few of them that were still in there. Some of the people like three or four guys, and that made up this whole storyline with them being the Jewish Nazis. I mean, it's unbelievable. Mm. So anyway, it's just it's not true, right? But it, it it works with people. You try to sell a scam to a public, you know why not, right? You can say anything you want, uh, and you're talking to your own people. But the, the only thing I had seen. So, so the only thing I had seen on that, because I, I don't know very much about it, but I had seen things where it'd be like screenshots of like the New York Times talking about this battalion in something like 2018 and saying the neo-Nazi Azov battalion. And then it cuts to today. And it's like the Azov battalion, who some have said has controversies, blah, blah, blah. Like, well, it has a background of that dating way back. Okay. But almost all those guys are gone. There was only a few guys left who were like neo-Nazis. Mm -hmm. in that but see all you need is one to make a story right that's all the new york times needs so wapo needs a lot of news they need one and that makes a whole narrative and so oh. and it's, it's bullshit so any rate um 
and, and so we put together a letter, which we sent to Xi, and then he sent it to Putin, which was this whole thing like, well, we've gotten what we want. We were, we, uh, were able to take care of, you know, get the Donbass, which is ours, on and on, just to, you know, we're desperate to stop, you know, do anything, little thing you can do to stop the war. Yeah. And, you know, and I was working with three really well-known guys, right, who are very uh, pretty famous guys. I, I'm not. But to craft a letter like that, that's how desperate we are to just stop the, the killing. And um, so I've been working pretty closely with uh, different groups, both in Russia, Ukraine, Eastern Europe, Europe, Finland, Sweden, London. And, and I've been spending a lot of time to try to figure out what's going on, but also to see changes in Putin's behavior because you know, it's easy to call somebody a psychopath, right? What you got to do is say, I don't like him, so he's a psychopath. That's what people do, especially politicians. I don't like how he acts, so he must be, and it says it's not true. Now, in this case, uh, one, one, one thing you can say is that, of course, to be a leader like this uh, in, in, these, in, in these sorts of heavily stressed situations, with these countries that are really still quite backward in many ways, that you have to be brutal. And in fact, you know, one of the things in the discussions I tried to uh, get across I mean, to the people in, in, I was talking to in Ukraine and, and to the people in intelligence, et cetera, that, uh, you know, if you do something that's accepted in that society, it ain't psychopathy, you know? Right. And, and, you know, Genghis Khan kills 120 million people. But if it's like cool then when Genghis Khan was going on, it ain't, it's not psychopathic. This is what we do, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if the Russian people, if they say, no, this is how we are. This is, this is what we do when we want your land or we get pissed off. We just take your land. We blow things up. If they want to own that, you see, then it's Putin is not a psychopath. But to the rest of the world, that means all of Russia is. I don't, I don't believe that's true. I got so many right. Russian friends, and, and you know, but you can't have it both ways. So you can get Putin off the hook by saying he's just doing like any of those guys do. And this was, you know, one of the one of the things about looking at who who caused World War One. You know, and the favorite target is Germany. So you know, but it turns out that everybody was involved because most of them were a part of the same family, the extended royal family. Yeah. And they all agreed on the rules, right? And this is what you do. And because they all agreed, they all took responsibility. They had to take responsibility because they all acted the same way, making it almost inevitable what happened, right? Yeah. And so they have to all own that. You can't blame the Kaiser. The Kaiser, Kaiser had his problems. It was probably pretty sociopathic or psychopathic. Um, but, and he had the same sort of background too that I, I mentioned. And, and so somebody's got to own this. And, and so if, if you want to say, look at that's how Russians are. And it, it, Russians aren't like that. There's a, a group, but if they approve of this, then they, they can get Putin off the hook. Now, I think, you know, most Western countries, even Eastern countries, uh, would say that what's going on is sociopathic, right? Uh, we've talked before about the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath, right? 
And I think, you know, he qualifies from what I know and from the biographers I know, John Sweeney, uh, he's got a new book coming out that goes back to 2001 and and Putin's uh, murders, the apartment murders, and then what happened in Chechnya. And so, and I did part of the last chapter for with John Sweeney and that that's coming out in a month. And it's a book about his serial killing. And he was John Sweeney, a BBC guy who then went in on his, on his own the past few months and has been reporting from Keith uh, since then. So he and I worked kind of close together. And not that he needs me working with him, but I, mean, I just happened to be. I'm, I'm curious about something here. How much do you think um, the guy's personality is uh, ultimately responsible for like the, the, the flow of events right now? In, in other words, if, if Putin was like a really nice guy and he was in this position, do you think he would be acting any differently or are, aren't, aren't there just like greater geopolitical incentives at play? Well, sure, that you, can, you can say the following. Let's say in his defense, this is how he sees it. First of all, he would define, uh, the most important thing that happened to him was that first of all, his, his own biography is wrong and we know this. And, and I've talked to the people who know the biography, the real biography. And he was, you know, he was born, he had a Georgian mother and, and the father was a, uh, you know, kind of a scoundrel and left. And she ended up being pretty much forced to give up the kid to go live with the grandparents in St. Petersburg in Petrograd. Okay. When he was very, very young. And when he was there, he was completely abused. And, you know, some of the people I know said he was sexually abused and he's got, and he's really got quite a, a florid kind of a, almost a, a, a Hunter Biden type of sex life. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but several different people who know they did his biography have told me this, we've written his biography. So mm-hmm. you know, how do you prove that? And, and why is it really important? Well, one of the things why it's important, if you look at female psychopaths, if he acts like a female, uh, they poison people. And that's what he does. He poisons people. So it's interesting to me because his psychopathy follows that of most women. Most women don't beat you up and shoot you. They poison you, right? This is the, uh, the, the, the pattern of some of them. And so I thought that was curious. But his, his other part of his sex life, I, I could give a rat's ass about. Sure. And, but at any rate, it fits in with a certain uh, pattern, which is kind of interesting. But at any rate, between birth and three, he was you know, a kid from a very broken family and was abused and was uh, bullied because he's a little guy. And he was bullied in the streets and then himself became a bully. You know, And he does, re- he does note an important point of his life was when he saw that rat. He had a rat cornered and a rat fought back. And he identified with the rat, the little rat. If you fight back to the death, this is your way to get out of a situation. So he's a, he's a, uh, look at him as like the little, little guy who was bullied, who learns how to be a bully, learns how to bully people. And certainly he's that. Uh, there's no, I don't think there's any question. I, I, have you seen the picture? Um, there's probably more than one of him where, where he's like standing next to some woman who's like slightly taller than him. So he's standing on a box. Uh, it, it's amazing. Like the oh, level yeah. of insecurity that you can have and be that powerful yeah and it's part of the perhaps part of the drive of him right is the compensation of being the little bully kid uh 
and, and this is how he overcompensates. So that was the first defining moment. He said, he said numerous times, the second, the most important defining moment is 1990 to 91. And when I, and, and I know the four guys and I, I in, in London, I, I was the one who ran the panel of these four at a public talk, ran the panel with these four guys who broke up the Soviet Union, who knew all of these people. And, um, and it was, in 1991, that's when Ukraine, the new state of Ukraine come, came into being. But the downfall of the Soviet Union just was a defining moment in his life. Much like for Hitler, you know, at the end of 1917, 18, the, at the end of World War I, uh, when, he, when, uh, when Ludendorff, and, and, and actually with in Hindenburg too, when they, created this myth of the, the stab in the back, that the Weimar Republic, the Jews in the, in the Weimar Republic stabbed them in the back, that they didn't lose, the, the German army didn't lose, they were stabbed in the back by the, the Weimar Jews in, that, in the government, and which were mostly communists, right? Or leftists, communists. And, and so, not all of them, but they were, you know, they were liberals and then it became sort of taken over by communists. That's the usual pattern, liberals and then communists take over. And and so, um, that, that was a usual pattern. That, well, if you look at if you look at the uh, the tyrannies of the past the twentieth century, of what happens, and you know World War One, the Spanish Civil War, the same exact thing happened. It was first taken over when they overthrew the tyranny. They're all liberals. They're all like middle class liberals and intellectuals. And then immediately the the then that's when the communists came in. But there's a repeating pattern uh, because the 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 liberals usually don't fight back, but they open the door for for for, for other uh, groups to to come in. That's been the pattern in the 20th century uh, for for different governments. That, that, that and that's occurred over and over again. So uh, in this case, with uh, with Putin, he was so offended. It was like Hitler and the stab in the back. And that's when I think that's what triggered him to, he made a commitment, we're waiting for the right time, waiting for the right moment to get even, right? And to get back not only Ukraine, but everything that was lost. Now, one interesting part of this, in one of the meetings I had, actually two of the meetings I had in Europe with Viktor Yushchenko, with Berbalus, with uh, two, uh, the, the, the prime minister of Chechnya, and, and, in, and another uh, leader from Belarus. And I was asking him, what does Putin want? This is back in 2014, 15. What does Putin want? What's with the Donbass? Because we had a whole talk at, in, in London and a, a panel that ran there too on, on the Donbass. And, and why does he want the Donbass? And, and Viktor Yushchenko, and I still, I still have the bar napkins that he was writing at because we're eating and drinking together. But the, the other guys agreed with this, that he sees himself as the leader of the Kievan Rus, which goes back a thousand, over a thousand years. And the Kievan Rus are the, the destiny, much like Hitler had a destiny of being the Aryan. The narrative was that he's, you know, there are basically Vikings that go back to the Baltics, to, to Latvia, uh, and even Finland, Sweden, that they're basically Vikings, if you will, but they're Kievan Rus Vikings that 
you connect, if you connect that whole Kievan Rus area, it goes from the Baltics down the river systems uh, to the Donbass and to Crimea. And so he wanted to define himself as being the reincarnation of the, you know, this was a, a Kievan Rus Ben Tsar who would then re reunite all the Slavic people under the Kievan Rus uh, system because he didn't want to be Asian. He didn't, he is sort of Asian looking a bit, right? And he doesn't like that, they said. And so he wanted to get rid of this East-West thing, like somehow Russia is connected to China uh, or the East, you know, to, the, to Genghis Khan. He didn't like that. And, but he did want to be connected like Hitler did with the Aryans of the Baltic. And so this was the mythology. And it's a similar mythology that, uh, you know, one, one of the great historians uh, is uh, Isaiah Berlin, when he talked about, you know, how you, uh, who gave the reasons for the, for the Nazis, who gave the reason for the Stalinists, who gave a reason for the jihadists. It was one person who did. And it was uh, Joseph de Maestre. And he was, you know, around 1800, he was a philosopher, a Savoy, uh, it's kind of the Eastern part of France that's, that abuts Switzerland. And he was, he, he gave the, the recipe for becoming a tyrant. And they all used what he did. So on the philosophical side, most of these extremists left and right sort of, you know, uh, political systems like Nazism and communism, that they share in common what Isaiah Berlin, when he talks about what Joseph de Maestre said, uh, the recipe was there. And he said also most terrorist groups use the same thing. So, they, so if you take uh, that with he 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 Hegelism, you know, left and right Hegelism, that philosophy that's where you come up with all these modern systems, you know, the Nazis and the, and the, and the communists and the, especially the Stalinists. What is uh, Hegelism for the, the folks at home? Well, Hegel was a, you know, a, a German <clears throat> philosopher and he is credited for giving the sort of the background root, uh, philosophical uh, root of extreme left and extreme right uh, group. So Marx was a left Hegelian. So all those communists started with Marx and all his, all his buddies and, and the people in the Paris Commune, you know, 1871, but, but also that spread into this, you know, in the Spanish Civil War, but all around Europe. And then they moved it to Central America and the Caribbean, et cetera, after the Spanish Civil War. And they were, uh, there were several groups. One were the, the Bakuninists, which were the Antifa people, uh, this is, we're talking about the 19th century. There's nothing new about what's going on now. Uh, but also Hegel formed the uh, sort of the philosophical background. And there was the, the young Hegelians, which Marx was a young Hegelian. So Marx and, Le and Lenin and all these guys that are communists are the left Hegelians. And all the people who are like the Nazis and the fascists are right Hegelians. But they all come from the same root. There's no real difference between uh, like fascists and communists they they they're, they're just they're just competing for the same followers it is okay so what is I, I know the guy's name but i don't really know very much about his philosophy is there like a broad strokes to his like major idea 
Well, he's misinterpreted. You say both the left and the right misinterpreted what he said. It's like, you know, there are many philosophers throughout the ages from the, the post-Socratics onward where they would say something and it was, was taken out of context. It's like Machiavelli. You know, Machiavelli says, look, if you're going to be a dictator, lead, this is what you got to do. That doesn't mean he wanted it, right? And so the, uh, the whole idea of, of having this sort of um, German romanticism and this uh, where you replace extant religions with this other religion, which could be Marxism, which could be Nazism. And that sort of the seeds were planted by Hegel for that, the justification. So even though he didn't say do this, he's the one that forms the basis of their philosophy because they could then mutated it because the, Hegel gave rise to both Marx, Marxism and, 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 and Nazism. So it, it seems odd. People think they're opposite. They're not opposite at all. They're very extremely similar. They both hate capitalism. They both hate democracy. They both have their, their own religion. They get rid of regular religions. They hate rights. They hate all the, you know, so they're just, they, they're just fighting for the same people to rule and, and, and to lead. So at any rate, so Hegel is, if you want to go back and say, what's the root of this? But if you read a summary of Hegel and then add on to it, Joseph de Maestre, these two together gives you most of the background and justification and narrative for uh, 19th and 20th century uh, tyrannies. Well, one of the things that's interesting to sort of think about is the fact that, you, you know, you mentioned how these dictators are psychopath psychopathic. And, not all of them, not, not uh, all of them. Sure, uh, but the ones who are, you know, you try to imagine like a, a psychopath guy on the street who kills someone with an ax and, you know, he's killed one person, but Hitler kills like 6 million people. Does, does that mean like Hitler is somehow like 6 million times more evil or, or is he the same level of evil and just has different powers? Well, if you look at, you know, one question is, do people like Stalin and Hitler and Putin, do they think they're, what they're doing is right and righteous and moral? And a, and a real psychopath doesn't have that, doesn't think what they're doing is immoral, right? So, sociopaths do. They know they're doing it, to, doing something to get ahead. They do have moral reasoning. And so that's one of the bifurcations you have to do and say, is what they're doing, do they believe it? And I think, I believe that Putin really thinks he's gonna save the Russian people, the Rus, and he's the, he's the old, he's, he's a thousand year old warlord, he really thinks this, and that he's just saving the Rus, and he's doing something that, that's righteous and good, just like Machiavelli would say. They say, no, this is, this is what you have to do to save your people. So uh, if you look at somebody, and so if you look at these dictators, you say, in their um, in their defense, they're they're doing they're doing this. And, and if you look at Genghis Khan, well, how do you how do you justify Genghis Khan killing a hundred million people? I mean, he killed one point two million in about an hour. You know, when he got to the when he got to north the north part of the, the Middle East, and 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 so is that just the way it was at that time? So you have to look at the mores. Uh, in, in order to call it psycho psychopathy or sociopathy, you have to say, is this how most people acted? You know, people talk about slavery. Is was we're talking about slavery, which was you know 
started in, in Africa. Are we saying they're terrible people because, and they still have, they still have slavery in Africa. Are we gonna say that it's evil or is it just part of their whole system? So, you know, it started in Africa and it was spread by, by, uh, by a group of Arabs and then the Portuguese. So you have slavery, is that evil? Or, you know, yeah, we would say that's evil and, and it still is, it's still going on. Uh, but at the time, was it evil? Or is it just accepted? This is just accepted behavior. And, and so- couldn't, couldn't that also be used to justify, like, you know, if you're living in Nazism, the, the good thing to do is to be anti-Semitic, you know, like for that time and place. You, well, you they were, he said, they, 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 you know, just like Putin is making a case, like we're just doing, getting our land back, right? And you can make this case, you know, and a lot of people on the far right in America and in Europe are, are, are on Putin's side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's absurd. So, the, you know, the, 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 the far right and the far left are just botching this terribly. And I don't know why they are, because they're not, we're not supposed to be, have that bias in history. Right, but you you see it right now. You can you can find it anywhere. You go into any bar and you find this passionate sort of defense of Putin, and then this passionate defense of Germany. And how do you explain that? Well, uh, you could well you can use the historical uh, perspective, and you can say, look, we used to own Ukraine. Well, if you look at this argument, right. Uh, the only people that I could find that could make the, the moral argument uh, of, well, we had our land stolen from us uh, and we didn't steal it. The only people would be the Aboriginal groups in New Guinea who were the original people. And also in Southern Africa, this, the, the San people and the Choza, you know, the Choza people, they were the original people. Those two groups are the only ones that were screwed and they had their land taken from them, right? And, and now there's, you know, they've got a lot of it back, but it's, um, they're the only ones that can make that claim. You know, American Amerinds can't because they, they were not here first. They displaced a previous group uh, that came over that looks more and more like that. So every, so you, everywhere you look, where you try to go back saying, well, we had it taken back a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago, 500 years ago, you can play this game to justify any behavior, but the only two groups, the two major groups, like I mentioned, where that's true are those aboriginals in, you know, in part of Australia, New Zealand, but also especially New Guinea and the, the Southern Africans. And the rest of them, they ended up they were displaced, but they displaced somebody else. I mean, they're, so everybody's part of the game, right? And so this is pretty much part of being uh, in, a, in a human group who, who, who lords it over other people. And they'll say, well, we needed to, to survive. We had a drought, you know, and now we needed this for, for us to, uh, in order to survive. So they justify it that way. That's a tough game to play, that sort of narrative. Right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious, where do you think, um, you mentioned the, the letter that you were trying to send and you know, the, the whole notion of saving face at this point seems to be important. No, we did, he got, it got to G and he sent it forward. Okay. 
Okay. So that, it, 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 it did work because the person we have that our contact there is is, is so connected. Uh, yeah, but I mean, what good did it do? We were desperate, but go ahead. I'm, I'm curious, where do you think this goes then? Because a lot of people, it, it seems like the U.S. sort of foreign policy establishment is, is fine to just let this war go on and on and sort of bleed Putin. Um, where do we go from here? Well, the, the, you know, as far as the people I work with, the thing is to not to do this, right? We want him out of there. <clears throat> and and well, sorry, when you say out of there, do you mean out of Joe Biden? Okay, out of Ukraine. Okay. Yeah. So we want Putin out of Ukraine. We didn't. We're very much against the violence and all of you know what he's doing, even though he's using all these you know these uh, justifications, which are which are pretty fake. You know, he didn't, he doesn't really need that land. He doesn't need the Donbass. He doesn't need that, you know, they don't need that anymore for any reason. And so uh, this is a, a mythology that he has. And it looks like, you know, the, the people who should know, I mean, I know some of them uh, who had said that he was really acting very poorly in the, in the past six months and things were changing. Now, what is that going to do? Does that be, make him more desperate so that he goes out with a bang? Would he use, would he use tactical nukes? Well, he's, you know, he started to use something halfway there. You know, he started to use thermal barracks in a place where you can't, you know, you can use thermal, according to the rules of war now, you can use thermal barracks on, in a field to, to, to blow open a, a, a bunker, for example, in a field of battle, but you can't use it <clears throat> against civilians in a city. That's a war crime. And he's willing to use those. He's been now willing to start using that. Now, some of those thermobarics are like small nukes and what, how they kill people and everything, right? And, and so will he, in an act of desperation, I think it's very possible for him to go out with a flash like this. Now, you know, there is word that, uh, and in fact, even have I think, in Newsweek, uh, that there was an attempt on his life in early April, an assassination. And, you know, this would be kind of a blessing, right? Uh, it's not, the United States and other countries are, are, don't believe in regime changes through assassination. Although Biden said this, I mean, if you, if you go back and you look at, you know, I mentioned what he's waiting for. He was waiting for weak leadership. So I'm sure when, when Biden was elected, and they know, you know, they know about Biden and he's, he's got, you know, cognitive impairments, very serious. And uh, they knew he'd, he was, he'd be weak. So he t he's been waiting in the wings for many years for this moment for both European leaders, Canadian leaders, and with and Joe Biden, that they wouldn't do anything. They really wouldn't do anything. Or they would do something so slowly he could get away with it. So he's been waiting for this magical moments and Biden being elected uh, was was a magic moment. So uh, that you know, as soon as he, he was elected, as soon as Biden was elected, I and I told the people in Ukraine that I work with and in Russia that watch out. This is that this is his moment. This is brings him back to 1990-91, the breakup of the Soviet Union. It brings him back to 2011. See, in his defense, Putin would say, "I was I was double crossed by you guys." 
2011, he agreed to go in to neutralize Gaddafi in, in Libya, right? Yeah. That was in 2011, and then there was a regime change. They, you know, they they were they 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 murdered Gaddafi in the streets, and he felt that he was double crossed by the West. So the 2011 thing uh, in Libya, which is interesting because the parallel thing happened with World War One in 1911 was also the bombing of Libya by the Italians. That's kind of was one of the lesser known causes of World War One. So a hundred years apart, we have a World War One being ignited by this sort of illegal move in Libya. And you could say what we did and what the West did was an illegal move and it embarrassed Putin and that probably hardened his resolve. So that was another moment. There was a break of the Soviet Union, but then he said, oh, I've been double crossed. And so he's been waiting for this moment for weak leadership. And I'm just going after, I'm not just going after Biden. It was, but Biden's very weak, obviously. But it, Europe itself is weak and Canada is weak. They're in, and they're gonna be easy to push around and he knows this. He's a bully more than anything, Putin. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm curious, I, I don't, be, because I, I don't look at Trump as like the definition of strong leadership either. I didn't, I didn't vote for Trump. I never voted for a Republican. Yeah. I, I haven't mentioned Trump, but you know, sure. Biden, Biden is like the worst possible, you know, in terms of, you know, it's been a disaster. It's an obvious disaster. He does, has no idea, his own people know he's just, really has no idea what's going on. Yeah, but the, the weird thing for, for Putin, for, go, ahead, go ahead. I, I was just saying, you, you heard the misquotes that, that he gave or, or the statements where he said at one point, uh, you know, this guy can't be in power anymore. And, you know, his aides like rushed to be like, oh no, he didn't suggest we're in case. Like, he, was, he was right, exactly. Yeah. And this is, and, and Putin knows this, right? Because Putin was stung by the Libyan uh, change of regime violently. You know, we're not supposed to anymore. We're not supposed to assassinate people. We did the, the whole West. And so with Biden saying that, I mean, every every week there's something they've got to call say, no, he didn't really mean that. No, he didn't say that. No, he's not going to do it. His guy is, is, you know, I spent a lot of years studying Alzheimer's and mild cognitive impairment and and, and live with families who, who have this. And if, if you don't know that Joe Biden is, you know, I guess there are people still in denial. Yeah. It was his own his own White House knows that he can't he's incapable of of running a popsicle stand really I mean it, you talk about dangerous saying dangerous things and that's one of them regime change Jesus I mean you know it's really bad yeah. and but, you know left to his own devices he's saying crazy things because he's senile do you think so oh Biden is absolutely <laughs> I mean, he definitely—he definitely seems to have lost a step for sure. A step, you know, it's like everything he says is so screwed up. I mean, he just—he can read it, and but once he goes off, off, once he can't read it, he says the craziest, wacky things. And if you've ever been around, uh, you know, older people who have mild cognitive impairment or then transitioning. Uh, to some form of dementia, this is what you see. And his anger, he gets angry and he's like a bully. Uh, and remember, you mentioned Trump. Trump was a bully to people. He was the mean tweeter of powerful people. So Trump bullied powerful people. Biden like picks on waiters and waitresses and people who work in factories. I mean, a real bully. 
So all of these behaviors of, of him, of Biden coming out, he's like a bully. And, and, and this is one, one of the things that was mentioned a month and a half ago, his, his part of the reason his, his, uh, his popularity has gone way down is because people don't like him anymore. He's not the nice guy that they thought. Well, you got to give him a break. He's not himself. He's demented, right? He's got, he's really senile. And this is, so when you're senile, you become, you watch them, they get angry at everything and they become abusive. It's pretty rough. You know, if you've lived with the family members who yeah. like this. Can I ask you a totally unrelated question? Sure. Um, I remember at one point you were describing how you had all these brain scans up and they had, you know, criminals brains, like, you know, you, and you could see, you know, a quote unquote brain of a psychopath. Um, is there any any lab or anything that you, you, you can go to where someone can just scan your brain and look at it and be like, okay, well, here are probably your strengths and weaknesses or like, oh, it looks like you have this personality disorder or. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what we've been, that. I mean, that's what our, our lab at UCI and our colleagues have been doing since 1989, right? Exactly that. We you know, correlate behaviors with the brain scan and genetics. That's what we do. So, uh, but now almost all of us are retired, right? right? We've been doing that for 40 years, for almost 50 years. So we're, many of the people know what they know, but they don't have active labs. Are you saying, do labs exist? Yes. But, uh, you know, you need to have a, a positron emission tomography lab or a really good spec lab because to compare an individual against the group or an individual against another individual, you need absolute measures of brain activity. And you can't use an fMRI. See, fMRI is a lot cheaper, but that's for comparing groups. Like if we're comparing a group of 100 dictators and a group of 100 normal people, yeah. we could use fMRI. But if you're gonna compare, uh, just because of the way the measurements are made, um, the fMRI is relative relative. It's, this area's activity in your brain relative to the rest of your brain relative to the rest of the group you're in. It's relative, relative. So you can't make these absolute determinations. But if you could, uh, if you could do this, um, then you could find out. Now, you could, you could say, look at here are the areas of the brain that are hyper or hypoactive. And these are uh, the potential uh, this is the behaviors associated with it. I mean, I've done this for many years. Uh, that is to both explain it and also do it blindly to say uh, this, this person probably has the following traits. So I've done that with murderers, and serial killers, et cetera. And, uh, and so, yeah, you, I, 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 but you, you said, can it be done somewhere? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, like, is there somewhere I can just go and pay them money and say, here, you know, take whatever is a reasonable amount to pay for such a procedure. Oh, I see. Tell me, tell me what it, it well, is. Duncan, you should have come to me 10 years ago when we could just put you in there. Cause I, I did a oh. bunch of shows like the discovery channel and others where we did that with people and we put it on TV, but I'm not in control of that. And, and nobody I know at, at a university that controls the machines uh, does that, but you could, you know, expect scan, which is like, you know, it's it's a low resolution PET scan. It's 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 a bit different, but still can be useful in, in a good, uh, in in a good clinic. You can get that done for maybe three or four or five hundred dollars, and uh, and so you could have yes, spec scan is 
is cheaper. And you can also, if you can find, you know, in the Bay Area for you or people, they can check for clinical trials that are being tr run and they can go in and you want it where you're doing genetics and some kind of imaging and a psychological workup. I mean, that's what we did with all these people. And so you have to do all of those things. And, um, and you could find a clinical trial and in, 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 in volunteer. It may be you and a bunch of schizophrenics or you and a bunch of <laughs> Alzheimer's, you know, yeah. you as a control. And so you just look up uh, in the clinicaltrials.gov and you find out local, you know, medical schools or clinics, hospitals that are doing those and see if you can join one. Uh, that's, how, that's how people would do it, uh, you know, locally. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised no one's started a business out of that because I, I can imagine oh, a lot of people. I wish I, I, wish I had, you know, uh, you had the, 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 the number of requests I've had. Um, yeah, it's been constant and, and enormous. But, uh, you know, I was reading the scans and it was part of it. I didn't have a machine myself. Mm -hmm. And and you're in a university and you just don't, you know, it'd be fun to be able to do that. But, you know, in the University of California, they're not going to have you do that to make money or to, or just as some on a kind of a lark. Let's see what it's like. You know, there's got to be some medical reason or, you know, like that. Uh, and so that kind of holds that back. That is to, to do this commercially. But yeah, it would be very useful to have a, a lab that would do the full genetics and everything. And you know, my work with these, these different groups, um, uh, and, and I work a lot, I've, you know, I've worked a lot with the US military for over 15 years, and I was on James Mattis's a committee, you know, on how, to, how, you, how you choose the best soldier for, for extreme warfare. So I was on the Secretary of Defense's committee, we you know, decided to put together grants and studies, and also even at the, the Vatican. And they don't, nobody ever likes the price because it's expensive, right. you know, the PET scans and everything. And you, they say, well, can't you just do me or can't you do the group? No, you have to do like two whole groups of controls and nobody wants to pay for controls. And, but you science is a study of controls really, you know, before anything. And, and so it's kind of expensive, but you know, the genetics cost has come down. So you could probably do you want to, Duncan, you want to start your own business and you'd have podcasts having to do with uh, doing scans of several types of people and then you'd interview them. This would be fantastic. Let me know when you do that. Okay. Well, you fund that and you say so you start a company where you can have the genetics done. It's become a lot cheaper yeah. and you, have, you hire a psychiatrist and then you hire a, a brain scanner You get some CRO some research organization to do that. If fly it through their IRB and who can invest and you got yourself quite a business. And you know, this would be a fantastic podcast series of- Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, be, be wonderful, sure. Yeah, I'm really surprised that doesn't exist because I, I definitely know people who have expressed the same desire for like, I, I wish, you know, I could just go into a lab and they can look at my brain and tell me everything. Like, oh, yeah. you have- risks of Alzheimer's, you have, you know, you look like you're going to get grumpy if you don't eat. That. I did a show, I did exactly that with Eli Roth, you know, the producer, writer. Mm -hmm. the, and uh, so he, his agent contacted me and he came in and we did this whole thing, he did a TV show on him 
uh, to show what he was about. His brain scans, his genetics. That was that was great fun. That was uh, yeah, Eli Roth. He was we they were really kicked together. Yeah, that's uh that's wild. How how much would it cost per person if if you just wanted to do it once? How much do you think it would it would add up to? Well, you want to have genetics. You want to have a full psychiatric psychological demand, and you'd want to do the imaging, and and to do all those would be about seven or eight thousand dollars. Yeah, that sounds about right. And then, but you'd have then you'd have to get somebody to do it because people have their their own gigs going. Yeah, and, you know, it'd be like somebody calling you and saying, "Look, at, could you just devote a whole podcast to me talking to a friend?" And you'd say, no, come on, Duncan, that'd be easy to just put me in your pipeline. So, no, man, I got my own thing. This is my show. Right. And I talk about things I'm interested in, not what you're interested in. Well, they give you the same answer. Yeah, you're interested in that, but we're, you know, I got a whole lab doing something else. So it's very hard to convince them to, to get a lab to do it. And when I was able to convince them, uh, the, the, whoever was doing would have to agree to pay for a whole group so we could write a paper. Because nobody I worked with wanted to make money on this. They wanted to get enough data to get a grant to write a paper. That's what they live by. It has nothing to do with money uh, per se, you know, for these people. But they're not going to spend all this work unless it, like, advances their science or some major problem. So that's also a problem. And I've, uh, I've worked with five different producer groups, production companies, yeah. who have you know, over the years, over the past uh, 12 years, who said, Jim, let's do a show. You do the show, we'll, we'll pay for this. And I get that, I, you know, taught my the whole group when we're all together before we, you know, in the past few years, um, most of them retired. But at the time, uh, got the money together. But then when you go to the, you know, the, to the network and they say, okay, we're going to pay for this. Then they send it to their PR people. And they sent it to their insurance company, you know, the insurance um, uh, um, attorneys. And they say, this is too dangerous because what if you're wrong? What, and what if you let, you know, you say this person is a psychopath and then they get free and they go kill somebody. Well, NBC is going to be responsible for that. We can't do that. I, I did this with Google. Wow. I know that, you know, I knew that the three main heads, the CEOs of Google, and, and they were interested in doing this. And, and I said, well, when you talk to your attorneys and your PR group and they say, well, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to deal with the bad press? Because you're letting people, you're going to prove that somebody is a psychopath. They shouldn't be in jail because they can't help it. And it always comes down to this. And then all these shows, it's like once the attorneys look at it, the insurance people, the PR that's the end of that. Yeah, but that's so that's such a, a bad way of looking at it because those people are going to be so well, welcome to my world. But yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean this has been extremely, extremely frustrating because you know, I you know, to to get to the bottom of violence, of psychopathy, of, of predatory behavior, what could be more important? And to prove this out. I mean, and every they all got it. They all said, yes, this is so important very important to do that uh, but um and in and when i you know i one of the things when i was when i was working i continued to work with the military but this the one gig when mattis before trump fired him 
uh, Mattis was great. I mean, he read everything. He was just amazing. And, uh, and he says, we're going to do this. So, uh, but then he got fired, which was too bad. But in talking to them, you know, I had to, in talking with the military, so we're going to see what the factors are that contribute to senseless violence, predatory behavior. And I met with the head of recruiting, this mm -hmm. colonel who's the head of recruiting for the whole army. And he goes, we're not going to do this. He says, you're going to find that, you know, you're going to find blacks are, are at a higher rate of violence. And I'm not going to allow that. I'm not going to allow you to say that black people are violent. These recruits are violent. You see, so it becomes a political thing. Hmm. Uh, can you blame him? But he knew, you know, he knew the statistics on, with, uh, with African-Americans uh, that, you know, they, they murder at a rate 10 times everybody else. And, they, and he could see this coming out in the study. So he said, the hell with this. I understood that. Uh, you know, I, 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 and I had mentioned to you at one time, I met with the, the, the titular head, the guy who was the head of BLM back seven years ago, seven, eight years ago. At a, at a meeting and met with him a couple of times and talked about the impact of slavery, hundreds of years of slavery on American blacks and how it would create a, a you know, violent culture and why it was so bad. Uh, you know, the, the pervasive continuing effects of slavery. And he really dug it. I said, but he goes, can you be on the board of BLM? I said, you're going to go say that there's this old white guy, this old gray-haired white guy. And we're going to have him on the board because he, he has an explanation for the very high rates of violence in American Black communities. That is not Caribbean Blacks who moved to America, but the actual grandchildren of uh, uh, slaves. And you know, hundreds of years of this abuse of slavery and how it could explain uh, genetically or epigenetic uh, sort of triggering of higher rates of violence. And so he went and he, he says, I got to talk to the board to see if you could be on. He came back, he goes, well, they, we really can't have you on the board. But they did end up using the information. I could see that. They didn't say, well, I talked to Jim Fallon and he said to do this, but I could see in some of the ideas about reparations that they were probably, they may have been using that sort of, uh, uh, you know, narrative. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know that. But the main point is that in every case, you think that here you can you can you can demonstrate biologically uh, in biological psychiatry the impact of slavery, the impact of abuse, the impacts of continuous neighborhoods where the kids, the young kids, are seeing violence and there's bullying and, and what this does to the world, what it does to the small communities. Uh, around the world it has nothing to do with race. It's, you know, being in that group that has hundreds of years, um, multiple generations. So they all got this, the importance of it. Every, every one of them got it. But the downside is somebody's ox gets gored. They say, aha, you're going to blame this group or this is, it's going to be this group. And that's how they end up seeing it. So the, the useful and good science where there's no blame but explanation they can't do it. As soon as they get to the attorneys and the PR people, forget it. So this is uh, getting back to your point of it'll be a great show if you can do it, Duncan. If you can raise the money and get a CRO to do it, and but you got to be very careful that there's no way that politically this could be interpreted, you know, uh, in a in a in a in a, in a negative way. 
because then you, it will be supported. It's amazing that that's the barrier. Um, well, it's one of the barriers. One, one of the barriers, yeah. Um, so we're almost at an hour here. Is there anything else? Um, I, I know you're, you're a busy man. Uh, anything else you wanted to, uh, to discuss or uh, promote or get off your chest before we go? Um, no, I mean, we, you know, you wanted to talk about Putin and what I, you know, yeah, it's great that everybody's becoming an expert on Putin, you know, I don't I know, know right? as good as do, but um, it, it's good that there's a lot of awareness of this and to see how this will play out. Uh, but, uh, and so I, I think I told you a lot of what I, you know, broad sweep of what yeah. I found out over the past, uh, it's really 11 years since he became on the radar of us dictator hunters. <laughs> um, well, on that note, Jim, always a pleasure and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, Duncan, I thank you. And I knew if I said anything about liberals that you, I'd see a little twinge in you. <laughs> every time every dis, every discussion we have i always throw some little thing about liberals and you get you can see you, you get a little twist in your back that's oh, good you can take the teasing so much so okay great to talk to you buddy good talking to you as well take care thank you to james fallon and thanks for listening to dunk tank i'm duncan gammy see you next time